there are signs all over the world of people demanding action to deal with the climate change, which is now no longer theoretical, but real. And uh, the massive disruptions in patterns of weather are evidence. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program. In these podcast conversations, I've had the pleasure of talking with a number of real stars from the environmental policy world asking them to comment not only on relevant policy issues, but also to reflect on their own personal experiences over the years. Now, to do an adequate job of that with my guest today, we would need the entire day, not just 30 minutes that we have. And I say that because my guest today is Mary Nichols, whom I first became aware of some 40 years ago in the early 1980s when I was working at the Environmental Defense Fund, then in Berkeley, California, before I moved across the country to enroll in the PhD program in economics at Harvard. What is absolutely astonishing to me is that Mary Nichols already had a prominent and highly successful career in environmental protection and regulation at that time, and she has accomplished so much more in the decades since then. Welcome, Mary, to Environmental Insights. Thank you, Rob. So in a few minutes, I'm very eager to hear your reflections and assessment of the current state of environmental and climate change policy. But first, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Ithaca, New York. Uh, it used to be called centrally isolated because it wasn't served by a major airline. And unfortunately, that's still the case, but it's an incredibly beautiful place uh, with a lake and with uh, wonderful gorges. And uh, in fact, I have a T-shirt that says Ithaca is gorgeous. So, it, Which is absolutely true. I can vouch for that. Having done actually a master's degree there in agricultural economics before I went out to Berkeley and joined uh, the staff at EDF. So should I assume that one or both of your parents were academics? Yes. Uh, my dad was a longtime professor of electrical engineering at Cornell. Uh, he retired as mayor of Ithaca and then oh, wow. the <clears throat> last years of his life <clears throat> actually uh, doing uh, political work. Uh, my mother uh, got her PhD at um, at Cornell, a little bit ahead of my father, actually, mm -hmm. in uh, French literature. And she ended up, because of the rules in those days about not having two uh, members of the same family, even if they were um, in completely different departments, the nepotism, anti-nepotism policy, it was called. Um, she couldn't get a job at Cornell if my dad was there. So she ended up as a, as a junior high school and high school languages teacher and also had a great career. She was the one who actually preceded my father into local politics. They were both active. 
That's interesting because nowadays, because of the prevalence of couples, both of whom are academics, sometimes it seems as if it's almost the norm as opposed to a prohibition for uh, couples to both have faculty appointments within the same university. Absolutely. In fact, it's a recruitment tool that I yes. used during time at UCLA. If you could provide a job for the spouse, uh, that was a tremendous way of getting somebody else there. Absolutely. Now, you actually w went to college at Cornell, is that right? I did. I did my undergraduate degree at Cornell. Then I left Ithaca. Uh, at that point, uh, I really wanted to get to the big city. I worked for the Wall Street Journal for a year and uh, at a foundation that was doing criminal justice reform. And that, plus my experience having been a civil rights worker in the South in 1964, uh, led me to law school. And that was at what many people would say is the leading law school in the United States, yeah. Yale Law School. It's a great law school. I, I'm always surprised when someone from Harvard will say that. But yes, absolutely. We thought we were anyway. Yes. Well, you'll notice that I said what many people would say is the leading law school. I tried to hedge my bets a little <laughs> bit there. So you graduate from Yale Law School. What was your first position out of law school? Uh, well, my first uh, actual uh, law job was with a, an organization called the Center for Law in the Public Interest, otherwise mm -hmm. as Clippy, which was one of uh, a set of uh, new public interest law firms that was just opening up uh, in the early 1970s with major support from the Ford Foundation, which mm -hmm. recognized early on that there was a new, a new idea and a new uh, potential for lawyers to do good, uh, particularly in the environment uh, with the uh, new statutes that were coming online and opportunities to enforce those statutes in the courts. So at the Center for Law and the Public Interest, were you, in fact, working on environmental, natural resource and energy issues or a broader suite of policies? Clippy eventually uh, broadened its focus into um, affirmative action, civil rights, employment litigation uh, with the addition of a, of a new younger lawyer who was a real expert in those issues. And I did some work on his cases, but my primary focus was on the environment. And so had that interest developed in law school or was it earlier when you were at Cornell or when you were a small child? How did the interest in environment develop? First of all, I have to say that um, when I was growing up, I don't think the environment was a topic of discussion at all. I mean, mm -hmm. there was nature, there were uh, resources, there were there were parks, there was the outdoors, and you know, I spent a considerable amount of time, um, you know, in the in the area around Cornell hiking and with mm -hmm. faculty members who uh, would go out and do uh, talks on geology or uh, or uh, mushrooming, and uh, but also just um, uh, you know, just being outside in, a, in an interesting place. You learned a lot about nature study, uh, went to camp along the lake, swam, etc. cetera. Um, but really, um, the topic of environment as, a, as, a, as something you would study in school uh, didn't really cross my path until I was already almost through law school when um, a group of people um, led by Gus Speth and... Mm -hmm other uh, Yale law students who were a couple of years ahead of me, and the man who later uh, became my husband, John Dom, uh, mm -hmm. was forming a public interest law firm. And that, the whole focus was on, was on the environment. 
Um, and for me, it was more a question of not wanting to join the corporate establishment, not wanting mm-hmm. to do um, what at that time seemed like the default, which was to go join a, a big law firm, but to do something that was more aimed at uh, making the world a better place, which is why I had gone to law school in the first place. And indeed, this period that you're talking about when you were at the Center for Law and the Public Interest, which I think was 1971 to 74 or thereabouts, that's the period of time in which this whole suite of major statutes were in fact passed by the Congress, signed by the President of the United States. Yes. And the state of California also was quite active in those days, as as you would expect, uh, with particularly some groundbreaking legislation around air quality. So let's go through at least some of the chronology of your subsequent positions. Eventually, of course, they lead up to your return to California uh, for the second time as the chair of the important and very powerful uh, Air Resources Board from 2007 to 2020. But long before that happened, you had a whole set of other really interesting positions. And is is the first of those going to be in the state of California as well, Secretary of Environmental Affairs, or am I confusing my ordering here? No, it's a, it's a little complicated, but uh, Jerry Brown was elected governor in, in uh, 1974, and one of the positions, that he, or one of the many boards, uh, really, that are a characteristic of California state government was the California Air Resources Board, which up until that time had not been considered exactly a plum appointment. But um, Mm -hmm. his campaign manager, Tom Quinn, who had grown up in L.A., um, son of a a politically active uh, deputy mayor and somebody who basically uh, had had been excited about the opportunity to do something about the smog, which at that point was uh, a very prevalent uh, feature of Los Angeles. It was it it was, you know, something that people joked about on television. Mm -hmm. Uh, Johnny Carson had a running joke about that. It was ugly. Uh, and he hated it, and uh, he asked for the position of chair of the Air Resources Board, which in those days uh, wasn't even a full-time job. So in order to allow for Tom to come into government and continue to support his family, um, the governor created a new position called uh, Secretary for Environmental Affairs, which gave the chair of the Air Resources Board responsibility for also coordinating uh, with the State Water Resources Control Board and what was then called the Solid Waste Management Board. So all three of those areas um, uh, reported through uh, the ARB chair, and we had, in effect, a mini a mini environmental protection agency. And at this point, so you stay until 1978 within the state government, is that right? Uh, yes, yes. I took I, I took what amounted to being a leave of absence for a year because um, I'd been commuting to Sacramento uh, with one child, but I was pregnant with a second, and it oh, gosh. just too much. So um, I uh, I came back home to L.A. and took a job with a, the then um, city attorney of Los Angeles, Burt Pines, a mm-hmm. man who has uh, done. A lot of great things, but that included taking also a previously um, not very interesting or not well-regarded job and turning it into a politically important position. Anyway, Bert uh, had basically um, run out of his um, previous um, deputy in charge of his, all the civil 
uh, civil legal work for the city of Los Angeles. And so he offered me that position. And then you stayed there for a number of years. And then in 1983, did you go into private practice of law? Uh, actually, no, I only was at the, sorry, I was only at the city attorney's office for a year. It was an eventful year, as these things always seem to be. I, I've been mm-hmm. accused of creating uh, excitement where I go. I don't think that's true, but I have had a lot of fortune, good fortune as a lawyer to be in places where there was important important work going on and where it was an opportunity to actually uh, make changes happen. But anyway, I went back to, no, I went back to CARB after uh-huh. a year after my daughter was uh, uh, old enough to be left at least uh, for a day or two at a time and uh, went back into state government uh, again, this time as chair of CARB, stayed there until the end of Jerry's second term of office, Jerry Brown's second term of office. And from there, um, I ended up in private practice briefly. It's a I don't think we really need to cover every inch of this. Well, I I want to cover the next inch because the next inch after the private law practice, I believe, is that you founded the Los Angeles Office of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Is that Uh, right? NRDC decided to open up an office in Los Angeles. They were the first major uh, national environmental group to have an office in Southern California. Uh, I was inspired by that uh, by that vision of theirs, because of course I have become a patriot for Southern California mm-hmm. as a place where uh, there was a, a lot of important, interesting work to be done, and it was also the center of gravity in terms of um, population in Southern California. So um, yes, when they said that they were going to come to um, to uh, LA, I took advantage of the opportunity to join up. You know, I should mention for so much of our audience is actually international in other parts of the world. And so I should highlight the fact that in the United States, there is an extremely important role played by uh, a limited number of national environmental advocacy groups. And NRDC, which Mary's been talking about, is certainly one of them. The Environmental Defense Fund is another. And there are others uh, beyond that. So you stayed with NRDC until the Clinton administration gave you a call. That is correct. I was I was in the LA office. Uh, I actually was also, while serving um, uh, at NRDC, while working at NRDC, I also was appointed by uh, Mayor Tom Bradley to the board of the LA Department of Water and Power Commissioners, which was the uh, governing body for the largest municipal utility in the United States. So um, while on the NRDC payroll, I was spending quite a lot of time as uh, one of the governors of a very large and very um, important uh, utility that had both electricity and water um, under its purview. And if I'm correct, you were assistant administrator at EPA for uh, at least what was then called uh, air and radiation. Yes, it still is the office of radiation, and there's an assistant administrator job, right? It's a sort of what they call the national program manager for Mm -hmm. the radiation piece of the job is not a very large one, but I did have a box that sat on my desk that was supposed to go off whenever there was a radiation emergency somewhere. It was actually one of those um, secure telephones that, um, you know, you have to have a key to to, uh, unlock the telephone to get one. Messages that are supposed to be coming in, 
it once rang during my four years at EPA, and it was a wrong number. But <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but I took it, I took my responsibilities seriously. Had you been there quite a bit er- earlier, it might have gone off during Three Mile Island, I suppose. Yes, exactly. It it did, in fact. And I did visit the places where we had uh, work going on relating to the radiation responsibility, mainly in Nevada, where, uh, well, and also New Mexico, where we had a role in certifying the um, the first um, the first repository for mm-hmm. nuclear waste. Right. Now, there's much more that we could go through, but I'm going to skip uh, the next 10 years, which is when you were back in California as chair of the Air Resources Board from 2000 to 2020, although, and that was when I got to know you all over again. Um, My recollection is that you threatened to retire from that long before 2020, but fortunately you you stayed on. Um, now, you've been fighting for clean air and a healthy environment for over four decades. And I'd like to focus in on climate change, which is something that over at least back to 2007, you were certainly thinking about and probably before then. Um, can you say something about how the climate change debate has evolved in the United States, uh, and for that matter, in California uh, during this time? Sure. Um when I was at EPA in the air office, there were some very smart people on my staff who were uh, already pushing hard for U.S. action on uh, on climate change. The former deputy in my office, Eileen Clausen, had gone uh-huh. over to the White House. She was a, she had been in the White House uh, and had had worked hard at the National Security Council to mm-hmm. uh, push the push the climate agenda. Um, when the negotiations at the UN around the Kyoto Accord came up, uh, mm-hmm. one of my staff members uh, went over to be part of those negotiations. And leading up to it, um, we were very actively involved in the design of uh, what uh, was intended to be. And it became in the uh, Kyoto uh, an international policy for a a cap and trade program for greenhouse gas emissions. So the United States at that point was officially committed to uh, both action and a very specific kind of action, um, which then it later repudiated, um, you know, when the people came back from uh, Kyoto and were told, forget about submitting this thing to to the Senate for ratification because it's a non-starter the uh, job of implementing the Clean Air Act and dealing with urban air pollution, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as regional haze, new responsibilities that we had for uh, dealing with acid rain, um, seemed to me to be more uh, more important uh, in in the sense of being something you could do something about (laughs) as well. That we had legal, we had a legal mandate to work in those areas, and my focus was, and pretty much always has been, on implementation, on taking statutory enactments, laws, and and using them to actually make something happen uh, as in the real world, as we like to say. And climate just seemed to be too esoteric, as well as distant. Uh, obviously, my views changed on that, and so have those of most of the rest of. Uh, of the world, mm-hmm. um, but it took a while, uh, and really for me, the key was recognizing that 
when it came to dealing with the causes of climate change, what was actually causing the increasing buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it was essentially the same root causes, the same fundamental issues about how we use energy, how Mm -hmm. we use electricity, how we move ourselves around. The combustion of fossil fuels was at the heart of it all. It's obviously more complicated and nuanced than that. But to me, the recognition that if you were doing your job correctly in terms of dealing with uh, air pollution that hurts people's health and that they can see, you were also uh, potentially going to be able to uh, make a real uh, dent in the in the climate problem as well. Now, what's certainly true is that California um, has played a leadership role uh, recent, more recently in the fight against climate change, but as you well know, going back to the early days of the Clean Air Act in terms of localized air pollution. But thinking about climate change, given that California has put in place a suite of policies that are relatively ambitious compared to the rest of the country, um, for that matter, um, are there lessons that other states or for that matter, other countries can learn from the California experience? Well, I think so. Um, One of the reasons why California enacted the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2007 was a desire on the part of the state to um, be a model for how a state could take action that could have an impact on climate change, um, both in terms of actual measured reductions in emissions and also developing policies and programs that could be uh, adapted in other places. Our goal, of course, was to try to push the U.S. government to adopt meaningful climate legislation. And while um, we're still uh, only, I think, in some ways, uh, you know, working around the edges of that um, in terms of having a single comprehensive climate law, um, the, the work that we've done uh, absolutely has formed the basis for other states to act, as well as uh, uh, help to give some of the, the backdrop and provide uh, the, the experience that enabled the, um, the federal government to pass President Biden's very ambitious agenda. Now, you've worked closely with both Democratic and Republican administrations over the years, including in the state of California. Um, can you say something about how the political climate has affected your work? Well, first of all, um, in California, um, there is a complete dominance these days of of legislative positions and local government positions by the Democratic Party. So um, while uh, it's always had an attempt to be a bipartisan uh, governance structure, even under uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, there were still uh, major um, positions that were filled by people who were Democrats, including mm-hmm. the chief of staff. Still, Governor Schwarzenegger himself, in some ways, is a is a model of a kind of uh, Republican who uh, does not par- does not make things partisan if he doesn't have to. He has a he has strong. Um, beliefs about markets in particular and about regulation in the sense that he favors um, the the lightest possible touch when it comes to um, to action on mm-hmm. any important issue but he's not um, he, he doesn't have that instinct to go for the partisan immediately 
And so it was easy to easy to work for him. It also made some Republicans uh, very nervous. And I know that, uh, you know, he's had in many cases more more issues with Republicans than he has with Democrats. Well, indeed, um, former Governor Schwarzenegger may be an example of uh, a category uh, which is now a null set that essentially no longer exists, which are uh, moderate Republicans. Um, I worked closely with the George H.W. Bush White House on the development of the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990, including the SO2 allowance trading system. And I think back to the people that populated that administration, including the president, sort of what we used to call country club Republicans and who cared about environment because they cared about the outdoors, as you said at the very beginning. Um, But that's sort of an extinct species now. Well, the term conservationist used to be uh, sort of used as a distinction between environmentalists, who were the people who wanted to, you know, control what came out of the tailpipes of cars and factories, and the conservationists who cared about preserving landscapes and natural resources. And those people, uh, many of the leaders in that field uh, were Republicans, although maybe they weren't country club Republicans, but they were what I think of as being the hunting and fishing Republicans. And indeed, you know, those environmental statutes of the early 1970s were passed by Democratic Congresses and signed into law by a Republican president, Richard Nixon, if I recall correctly. Yes, you do. That's right. You know, our listeners, not only those in the U.S., but even those internationally, are are very aware of the political polarization that has now come to dominate um, in the U.S. Congress uh, and in in many of the state legislatures as, as well. Is there a way we can overcome this political polarization, in particular to achieve more progress on environmental issues? Well, I think uh, as President Biden has uh, has demonstrated, it is possible to put together legislation with um, votes from both parties uh, if you are attentive to the details and if the minority party, which is uh, in California, of course, the Republican Party, and in the House, it's much more uh, evenly split. But Either way, um, there are going to be individuals who were elected to represent their districts, their constituents, and who uh, can be persuaded to vote on bipartisan legislation if they can show the people who elected them that there are real benefits to them, to their to their families, to their communities, uh, jobs, opportunities, and so forth. Uh, in other words, if you can get past some of the rhetoric and move into the realm of the concrete. Um, there's nothing like uh, the opportunity for a ribbon cutting to bring an elected politician to the table. Indeed. So uh, what does that mean then in terms of where you would place yourself on the spectrum of very optimistic to very pessimistic about progress on climate change policy in the United States, and for that matter, around the world, are you are you characterize yourself, Mary, as an optimist, a pessimist, or something else altogether? Um, I think of myself as an optimist. I uh, I find myself spending a lot of time these days with classes or in uh, situations where I'm working with much younger people. And a lot of what I do is to uh, try to encourage them and give them uh, what I hope are uh, useful 
examples and tools to use to try to make progress happen. Um, it does no good to despair, of course. It's not a useful position uh, to have. It's also um, uh, a guarantee that uh, you, you're not going to succeed. So uh, while sometimes uh, I certainly have experienced setbacks, disappointments, situations where I wasn't able to uh, get where I thought we should go, uh, the example of uh, Henry Waxman's monumental climate legislation, which mm-hmm was even taken up for a vote in the U.S. Senate being, you know, just one important example there. Um, But I see that uh, there are signs all over the world of people demanding action to deal with the climate change, which is now no longer theoretical, but real. And uh, the massive disruptions in patterns of weather or evidence. It's not something that requires uh, statistics or deep uh, deep knowledge to, to see what's happening. Uh, I think politicians uh, are being increasingly pushed to do something meaningful. And it's not just a matter of mitigation uh, versus adaptation, which used to be the big question. The big argument is, are we going to do things that will protect ourselves against climate change versus um, uh, versus trying to stop it? Um, you know, we, we have to be doing both. And I think there's a lot of interest in, in doing that. Certainly uh, among the larger financial institutions in all countries and you know, companies that do business around the globe. Um, there's also a, a big stirring of interest and activism around uh, climate mm-hmm. and uh, not that that's no guarantee of success. I think they're as frustrated sometimes about the lack of clear policy direction as, as a environmental activists like myself, but at least there's a there's a, enough ferment going on to suggest that action is is likely. So that leads me to ask you, Mary, for a final question: What your reaction is to the youth movements of climate activism, uh, most prominently, obviously Greta Thunberg, but I mean much more broadly, essentially people of student age. Um, these uh, climate activism that's arisen mainly in Europe and the United States over recent years. What's your reaction to that? Well, actually, uh, I, I was at the Conference of Parties, the UN conference in uh, Egypt last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, UN had taken action uh, in a very uh, deliberate way to encourage countries to bring youth delegations to that meeting. So I had an opportunity to interact with uh, young people from Pacific Islands in particular, um, as well as from uh, Africa and Asia, and to um, uh, really be energized by their passion and uh, enthusiasm and creativity around how they were engaging their elders in their own countries uh, to be more decisive, more forthright, um, and, and more pragmatic about taking action on climate change. So I, I don't think I'm um, starry-eyed about this. I recognize the obstacles that they face, mm-hmm. but um, everywhere uh, in the world where there are opportunities for young people to express themselves, they're taking on this issue and, and they are demanding that their elders uh, 
take action to uh, not just leave them uh, the mess that they see in front of them right now. Well, that's a good place to bring this to a close. So thank you very much, Mary, for taking time to join us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Rob. So my guest today has been Mary Nichols, longtime leader in environmental regulation in the United States, in California, and for that matter, around the world. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.